0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift off. Hey
1: everyone, welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast, where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and other members of the space family. I'm Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University, which is also our partner in the podcast. Here's a short message from them. The
0: International Space University, founded in 1987 in Massachusetts, USA, and now headquartered in Strasbourg, France, is the world's premier international space education institution. It is supported by major space agencies and aerospace organizations. ISU offers the Master of Science in Space Studies program at its central campus in Strasbourg. ISU also conducts the highly acclaimed two-month space studies program at different host institutions in locations spanning the globe, and more recently implemented the Executive Space course the Southern Hemisphere Space Studies Programme and Commercial Space Programme. ISU programmes are delivered by over 100 ISU faculty members in concert with invited industry and agency experts from institutions around the world. Since its founding, 33 years ago, more than 4,800 students and participants from over 100 countries graduated from ISU. Follow us on social media at ISUNet.
1: Our guest on this episode is Errol Sawyer, the chief commercial officer of Swiss startup Pictera. Pictera is what we call a downstream earth observation company. Downstream because Pictera does not operate its own satellites, but rather uses satellite data provided by third parties who do so. They take this data and process it in ways to add value to their clients. Exactly what it entails, we will hear on the podcast. As you can imagine, not having your own satellite constellation makes these downstream business models a lot less capital intensive. If you find the right use case and the third party raw data is available, you may also get to revenue rapidly rather than having to wait for building out your satellite constellation. For these and other reasons, some entrepreneurs and investors like this type of business model, and we will be having a few of those on the podcast. Big is the first one. As a sign of the times, this episode was recorded at Pictero's offices at the beginning of February. While we mentioned the coronavirus right at the beginning of the episode, we could still travel freely. People were working at their offices and we were generally not as worried as just a few weeks later. Despite everything, we all keep on building the space ecosystem. In this way, please enjoy my conversation with Errol. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. We are in Lausanne in Switzerland on a reasonably sunny and unreasonably warm winter day. We were actually just, um, Errol and I, before the podcast started chatting about this upbeat topic, the coronavirus. Wonderful virus. So, Errol, let me ask you, do you think there's anything we can do with Earth observation data with regard to tracking something like this? Well, in terms of
2: what we've tracked so far, what I've seen from a GIS perspective is just empty streets. When you look down on large tracts of China, certainly in the Wuhan province, it's just empty. And uh, yeah, what, what seems to be happening is that, although you can't get real underground metrics, you can see how it's, it's actually impacting on communities. You can see how it's impacting on transport, how there's literally nothing moving. And it's quite fascinating to see. I mean, it looks like a, a post-apocalyptic movie. It's just quite bizarre. Um, but uh, beyond that, I'm not quite sure. I know, you know the resource I use to track that because I'm going to that part of the world shortly is uh, the Hopkins School uh, map that uh, shows all of the key information. But where they're getting that information from, I'm not sure.
1: Must be involving some geospatial data, I suppose. But I guess in general, if anybody can think of some sort of uh, smart way how we can use space-based data to track future epidemics, then I'm sure there's <laughs> going to be a money maker there. But whatever, let's dive into your business, um, of, of which you are the um, Chief Commercial Officer. Why don't you give us the elevator pitch on, on the company?
2: Of course. Well, it's very simple. There's a huge amount of uh, talk about you know, technology, about the technology of putting satellites into space, where most of the you know, investment goes. But our pitch is very simple. We take the data the earth observation data and democratize it mean make it available to everyone who has an interest in, in earth observation data and we do that in a way that means that they don't have to know anything about machine learning about ai in general about deep learning or data science we make it so simple for anybody to use the data to drive you know their
1: own personal or corporate interests can you give us maybe a specific use case to make a tangible of a customer? Sure. Um, of an industry and how, how it has value in their day to day business?
2: Well, I can get so we, we work across a lot of different industries. We work across forestry, um, ag- agriculture generally. We work across urban development, across the utilities providers, NGOs, and disaster recovery, and that type of thing. Generally speaking, um, I mean, one of our strongest use cases is, for example, uh, in forestry, um, where we've been asked in the past to map general tree cover we've been asked to look at disease vectors we've been asked to look at individual species like olive trees palm trees lemon trees blueberry crops Yeah, so it can get very specific we've also been asked to look at things like dead wood and tree fall and then vegetation encroachment on other things so for example with pipelines power lines railway lines we've been asked to map and spot vegetation encroachment into those particular features. So we, we, that's one use case. We've been asked to do a lot, we've done a lot of work around sustainability and wildlife preservation, tracking whales, things like caimans, you know, how many caimans there are in a given area. And it is fascinating to me that our user base is so inventive and so, you know, um, flexible with the way they use the product. And it's a joy to see, it really is. But you know, from our perspective, there is pretty much nothing that you can't find. You know, from from our platform, if you have the right imagery and you have the right data sources to start with.
1: In my experience, sometimes what I encounter is that a lot of people are still unaware of how much space can actually help them in their in their businesses because it's relatively recent developments until just a few years ago, you know, things like you are doing like Earth observation data in general, correct me if I'm wrong, would have been very expensive and prohibitively expensive to a lot of people. So keeping that in mind, do you find that when when you find your customers, is it mostly outbound that you have to go to people and explain how they can actually use space data to add value to their business? And, or do you also have inbound inquiries of people who already know that what is possible
2: and what they want? I mean, that, those that, are very, very good questions. So, from my perspective, yes, you're absolutely right. It was a very expensive process previously, primarily because access to the data wasn't generally available. You had to go through very specific sources to get good Earth observation data. And the drone population explosion hadn't happened at that point. So to get any type of coverage of any sizable geographic area, you really had to rely on those public sources. So that changed a lot, certainly in the last few years. And now there are more and more people who are commoditizing that Earth observation data. And we work with several of them. So the actual access to the data is becoming easier to get. But more importantly, I think it's because. People are becoming more aware. Again, I would absolutely agree with you that there was a slight ignorance in what it was capable of doing. And it was used very much in terms of academic or research purposes. Mm. There wasn't really a, a perceived commercial interest. But from our perspective, what we see is we get a lot of people directly approaching us around the capabilities of the platform to drive things like pipeline and power line inspections, like mining and uh, energy companies who want to understand what the, the layout is of their particular infrastructure and what the possibilities are, solar panel providers and solar farm operators, and also things like, for example, the whole drive, a lot of that innovation comes out of the academic field that we've always been strong in. So we get a huge amount of inbound interest in terms of things like using the the, the system. We have a free offering with the system that is really owned that people to try the product. And we have a huge number of universities and individual research programs and individual students who use the platform to drive their own internal research. So that tends to be all inbound. Outbound, We are now really pushing hard into the enterprise space so we're going out and explaining to more clients both governmental ngo and then industry heavy industry as well how we can benefit their operations how we can benefit their insight and their intelligence about the types of uh, opportunities they have to deliver better more efficiently and one specific use case on that which will help understand it is that we've been asked on a couple of occasions to monitor the condition of roads because you know there's a public responsibility for those governmental agencies to maintain that infrastructure. And they have limited budgets, so they've got to use them wisely. So what they come to us for is they say, well, I want to know the state of the roads. Are they cracking? Is there surface cracking? How fast is that cracking spreading? How deep is that cracking? And also are there potholes? Are there other signs of erosion? We then look at the available imagery where it doesn't exist, we try and organize with the owner of that project the creation of that imagery. And then we monitor it. And then we can see, to a very high degree of accuracy, how the state of the roads is, what it's doing in you know, pretty close to real time. We can see where those intersections are occurring between cracks to make the road even worse. We can drive the real sort of prioritization of the budget to the worst possible places because you can't, you know, you can't have a program of maintenance if you don't know where it is you've got to go and maintain. So, this really helps drive much better intelligence on the ground and much, much more intelligent use of budgets for those bodies.
1: This example of a use case like the the road maintenance, Mm. the potholes. Just so we understand, what kind of, uh, how frequently would people look at the satellite data? Is it well, like daily? Is it weekly? It can
2: be daily. It, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it depends on how, how good the data is, obviously, what the level of resolution is and what level of data they have access to. And if they're using drone data for some of the more problematic areas where the cracking is quite fine, they will run those programs basically weekly. So you get daily with satellite and you'll get weekly updates with the drone operators.
1: And just to understand a little bit of the you know, the, the microeconomics of this, um, I suppose many times this will be done in, in order to achieve some sort of um, cost savings. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, of course, you have to pay for, for the data for your yep. service. So how is this price? How should we think about this? Is this sort of um, per image, per size of image? How does it work? Well, the,
2: firstly, there's, there's two points there. So in terms of um, what it's what it's driving is driving cost savings because certainly on the programs we've done we've done the analysis afterwards and we've we've costed one tenth of the normal process to maintain and monitor that cracking intelligence so it's a man in a van going out with a stick and poking the crack and saying oh that's a bit bigger than it was now it's you know at a fraction of the cost of that no matter how, in, how expensive the data is it's a fraction of the cost to physically put people on the ground to see exactly what's happening. It's much faster. You get the data much faster, and you can act on it much faster. So that's one thing. In terms of uh, sorry, the second point in terms of the, the 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 pricing, it depends. Is the answer? It depends on what the individual project requires, which is why you know we sort of created this concept of this totally customized approach to any problem because a lot of people in our space have predefined solutions to predefined vertical problems there are some very very good companies out there who only address the agricultural sector who only address urban planning and building footprints that sort of thing so you know and they do a brilliant job don't get me wrong but our strength i think is the flexibility in what we do so We don't come to you with a solution and try and fit your problem into it. We look at your problem quite specifically
1: and then drive a solution to that particular problem. You actually bring up an interesting point and something I should ask. So if in terms of providing your service to the end customer, if you think of service models on one end of the spectrum, you could have a really bespoke, basically tailored consulting type approach. Yeah. It's basically, it's tailored to the individual client's problem. On the other hand, one could imagine sort of like, you know, like an Apple Store type scenario some other data store, I suppose, you go on there and the data is available in a user-friendly way. Where on the spectrum does PICTAR fall, you think? You're going to hate the answer to this.
2: It's it's both. Because we we have the the way we we sort of provide our solutions, we start with a free offering, which is for anybody to try the platform anybody to gain an insight to something that they're interested in we didn't have two single user sort of type offerings which enables you and it's based on the 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 volume of data that you're really looking to process and it sort of goes up in a nice scaled way and then you get to the enterprise solution which is what do you need so we we provide that it's not a consultancy gig as such but it is a consultative effort so we work with the client to come up with the best solution for their particular requirement and that requirement generally is quite large scale so that's multiple users running multiple projects at the same time so that they're not hampered and we remove effectively the top you know sort of cap on the amount of data you process so there isn't literally no limits and all you can eat you know solution but we make sure that we cover everything so it can be somebody who has really just that interest, personal interest, or a student who's doing some work that requires this level of remote sensing capability and, and analysis. And then it gets to the point where you can start doing something serious with it. Then it gets to the point where you're re- literally monetizing the solutions you create with us.
1: On this, on the um, more bespoke solution, how many of those would you say you have, uh, I second get an idea, I suppose, of your number of clients mm-hmm. across the board. And on, on this sort of um, consulting type arrangement, and then versus the, the broader mass using the, yeah. the free data. The last time I looked, we've got something like
2: 4,000 users on the, on the platform generally. Of those, we've got uh, some hundreds of people who are using it on a, on a more serious basis. So, you know, whether you're a professional or, or you're a premium user. And we're just now starting to get the end because the enterprise solution is fairly new. But we've got, as I, as I say, I've got, I'm seeing clients um now for that uh, and we're rolling out both that and also an educational solution which is targeted directly at the university so it's it's enterprise for educational establishments and they get a, a, a really good you know educational discount because that's just what they would get anyway but we provide that across a number of faculties trying to give them the, the best possible analysis tool to drive original research and also Effectively to put that into their curriculum as one of the tools for remote sensing earth observation and analysis
1: the free version Is that available directly on the site? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: it's just a download straight. You just send in your email account. And you're, you're going Okay, so that's
1: after the show if people want to check that out they Just go to your website again. That's pictorial.ch That's exactly right. Yeah. and You can play around with some earth observation data. Yeah. Yep. Last question on, on the product side So if you look at all of these, these, these use cases that you've encountered, is there something that you've seen that that really surprised you that you wouldn't have expected?
2: Well there's there's some I can talk about and some I can't talk sure. about. I mean obviously the the the, the utilization is is very specific to our clients but I've seen some very interesting utilizations one I one we've done which I can talk about which is in the public domain is working with the you know the, the Nepali government and a couple of other partners to drive a really strong program of disaster recovery management and making sure that yeah you know, they had the right on the ground data and intelligence to prioritize you know, sort of rescue efforts I love that that's the sort of of thing that i get quite excited about the other thing which i love and i I posted this up on my linkedin profile about a week or two weeks ago was a project that we did where we were looking for used tires because in one of the 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 biggest problems in poor and underdeveloped communities in sub-saharan africa is malaria and dengue fever they thrive in the water that gets left in used tires because they're perfect breeding grounds for these insects. Now, if you spray from the air, if you spray an open lake or, you know, an open flat body of water, the spray has an effect, but it won't get inside the tires. It won't go, you know, it'll land on the surface and it won't impact on the water inside the tires. Being able to spot the tires so you know where they are so you can go and either destroy them or empty them or do whatever you need to do. Give those NGOs and governmental agencies the knowledge of where to look, where these breeding grounds are, is a phenomenal and very powerful thing. Because 400,000 people a year die of malaria. And on top of that, there's probably another three or 400,000 people who die of those other diseases.
1: That's very interesting. For, for, for the tyros, that gets a little bit into to your um, technology process, I suppose. How do you train the classifiers for that? Because I suppose, do you have basically like a human looking at the same Im- images at the beginning just to label them? Like, this is a tire, this is well a, a tire. Yes. Yeah. Or yeah. do you sometimes actually also have to check the, the ground truth, send somebody out, and see what's really it, on the ground?
2: That, that's a really good question because it's sort of at the heart of how we deliver the service. Annotating that imagery is really important. However, what we've done is we've really simplified that process so that you you don't have to annotate every single example. You annotate a couple of things. So, you know, if you're looking for tires, you annotate, you know, a couple of examples on an image and then you annotate what not to look for. So you're training the the algorithm, the machine learning to say, well, I know what I'm looking for and I also know what to ignore. Then you just let it run and it runs for a little while while it trains the algorithm. Then at that point, the detector's ready to go. What did you need to know about machine learning? Nothing. What did you need to know about AI or the way that, you know, um, that type of technology works? Absolutely nothing. All you needed to know was what a tire looks like. And that's exactly, there's a little video on that posting that shows you somebody annotating the imagery and exactly what the production is of that process. And again, I think that applications that have a real social and, you know, economical and governmental benefit are my favorite types of application.
1: Agreed. And you and I, we have been talking uh, previously about finding use cases for for Brazil. Mm -hmm. So we shall continue to talk about (laughs) And I see, I mean, speaking of those those classifiers, things you can detect by satellite, um, I see you brought a list Uh of classifiers that you already have, which you have previously shown me, but why don't you pick maybe a, a few examples, because I think people broadly may not be aware of what's what's actually possible.
2: Sure, absolutely. I mean, um, let's just pick a couple at random, I mean, uh, I mentioned forestry before, uh, agriculture is very big area for us, so being able to monitor vineyards, uh, which is a big area, vines, missing vines being able to see where there's potentially disease because vines have gaps and even the colour of the foliage changes even things like (laughs) slurry tanks on farms potatoes things like that if you look at urban we've got you know air conditioners spotting air conditioners Looking at things like graveyards, I want to know how many boats there are on the coast. I want to understand what you know, how many parking lots there are, how many free spaces there are. All of this stuff is really valuable when you're starting to look at urban planning and physical infrastructure management. Please, you know, it's it's quite fascinating how rich the ability is of
1: the product to deliver that type of intelligence. So I'm I'm actually looking again at I um, list here to remind myself I'd seen it before, but it is really quite incredible because there's some stuff on here that probably, um, you know, people wouldn't have expected. Um, just to mention a few trampolines <laughs> to play. <laughs> <laughs> we got um, cemetery uh, tombs on the graveyard, manholes, blueberry crops. It's, it's really quite amazing. As you said, it's, um, you know, it's, the sky's the limit. Though. It really In is. And point. it
2: just, but the, the real strength of that is... If you know what it is you want to know and you can't physically put a person there, then, I mean, it's not, I mean, I, I, don't, I make no massive claims that PICTARE is the only solution on the ground. But the reality for me is that this is nothing less, there is no application of this that is not useful. It's not frivolous. It's not one of those applications that you could sort of go, ah, I can live without that. If you have an interest of stuff any stuff that's on the ground somewhere, you know, a solution like this will help you gauge, you know, how how big a problem you've got. And we've been asked to look at invasive species. This is something that's very common. We're being asked to say, well, you know, not weed and these things which have a, a horrible impact on urban environments. To be able to spot those, in, you know, those specific examples of invasive species is something that we get asked to do a lot.
1: Let's change tag a little bit and talk mm-hmm. about your suppliers. I think it's important to point out to listeners that um, if we look at the universe of Earth observation companies or remote sensing, you know, which uh, I guess I sometimes prefer to call it remote sensing, mm-hmm. because in theory we could have moon observation, Mars observation, yeah, and all, right, all, right. all these good things, and hopefully we will in the future. If you look at the universe of remote sensing companies, there are some which are, I suppose, vertically integrated in that they have their own satellites generating the mm-hmm. data and then also process and sell the data. And there's some other players like Pictera, which are basically, you have, as far as I know, at the moment, you don't have your own satellites. You're buying your data from existing um, third parties, which operate, operate satellites or satellite Constellations. And so, can
2: I just sure. just on that point, because we don't buy data, we don't provide that directly ourselves. What we have is a network of trusted partners that we partner up with to deliver the data to clients who need it. Most of our clients come to us with their own predefined data sets, so they already know what it is they want. I, geographically what the region they're looking at is, or what the specific area they're looking at is. What they want to do is be able to take. That detector and apply it to other data sets to say, okay, once I've done, once I've been through this, then I want to move up to the next data set. Is my problem the same? Then the next data set. So effectively, once you've trained the detector, it then becomes a very simple process to run multiple similar data sets through it. If the data set changes too much, you then have to reannotate. The annotation takes a few minutes just to continue training the detector. Say you know you, you knew what you were looking for there now add that to your list of things to consider
1: but okay, let's let's be clear on this so let's say i'm, I'm a customer I'm, I'm interested in understanding the number of trampolines in my uh-huh. this neighborhood do i have to go out and find like a source of satellite data that i then provide to you or are you
2: if you don't have it if you haven't done that already we can help you we can help identify who will have that information or we can help drive you toward in the right general direction if you're an enterprise client we would then probably you know sort of get involved uh, to a bit to a bit more of an extent because as i said that's a much more consultative process and it, it it becomes it's more like a project delivery mechanism but if you're if you're literally looking for some information for your own interest that isn't really driven by a commercial interest, you generally have the data already. If you sit in that middle bit where you've got some information but you could always do it more or better quality or higher resolution, again, we can help with that. And we can even help with the annotation. If you're not really sure what to annotate on what basis and to what level, we can help with that
1: process. I suppose part of the reason I'm asking is that, anecdotally, I've heard that depending on the supply of satellite data, um, Again, if you're not a technical person from the field, it's not always trivial to oh, no, no. integrate that data in your, let's say, in your own, into your own IT systems. Mm-hmm. And people have told me that it's, that that in itself is a value-added step. Is that then something you would provide for the client as well? Yes, yeah. at least for the enterprise yeah, clients. Yeah, yeah,
2: yep, Again, it's it's it's. We have partnerships with some very key owners of data, key providers, of, you know, um, people who do run and manage their own satellites. But generally speaking, I mean, I mean, every inch of the planet has been mapped to quite a high level already. So it's, it's it's understanding where to look and what it is you're you're trying to do.
1: Who would be some of your key partners that you're working with on the data supply side?
2: Uh, so Skywatch is one. Um, we're currently negotiating two or three other uh, organizational deals covering, you know, pretty much most of the, the world in terms of coverage um, for satellites. We work with several drone providers, uh, drone data providers, and, and on a case-by-case basis. So we're in the process right now building out and enriching those strategic partnerships. But there are several. Those are just the ones I can name off the top of my head.
1: Is it just optical data or are you working with some of the other data types as well? Like for example, the, 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 the SAR, that's mm-hmm. a synthetic aperture radar for the non-experts. Um, what that enables you to do is basically to see through uh, cloud cover, yeah. to see at the night.
2: Before. I mean, again, uh, we've been talking to people about SAR and uh, we're looking at that and seeing how we can do it. Right now, it's purely optical. Not because there's a restriction on the product but just we just haven't been asked for anything else we are looking at potentially how or, or what we would do with infrared you know infrared uh, sensors are now becoming more common on satellites and i think the, the prospect of the, the data that they throw up is quite fascinating and i'll come back to that in a minute because there's a very specific use case that i was asked about just very recently things like you know uh, lidar <laughs> can we support that type of situation The answer is, right now, we're not asked to, so there isn't that development imperative to do it. But as we move forwards, that's all on our road plan to look at and assess and and implement the things that make the most sense. So we will become much more multispectral as we move forwards. It's it's the nature of this industry that we're going to have to deal with those issues, primarily because you can't see everything. Now, coming back to the infrared, the the, the thing I loved about that was, I don't know if you remember, but in Luxembourg, there was a guy on the stage with me whose company did nothing but make an infrared sensor for satellites. That's all they did. And we got talking and he he was telling me about the capability of that sensor to identify the moisture content of a single leaf on a tree from space. So I then thought, oh, that's really, really fascinating. And literally within two or three days, I was asked if we could spot unhealthy leaves by the, the amount of moisture content they had
1: in there. I, I, was, I was going to ask about the <laughs> commercial applicability of yeah. the moisture content. Is there any other sort of commercial use cases that sprung
2: to your mind with regard to infrared sensors? Well, I mean, it, I mean, it, it's that for me is a very, very because of our involvement in agriculture and precision agriculture. But that, that, there must be multiple abilities. It's certainly, oh. when you look at the the ability to target heat blooms underground. So, if you've got a burst pipeline, for example, you could see where hot water is seeping into the ground source from space. You have the ability to spot large thermal accretions in situ. There must be multiple and very interesting use cases. for um,
1: and Possibly back to feverish
2: people in epidemics. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <hope Yes>. <laughs> they're all in the same house. It's really weird. Um, no, but it, it is, you know, it's fascinating where this industry is going. And we're just really pleased to be part of it. I mean, people might look at us and go, well, you're not a space business. You're, you're Earth observation. So all you're doing is effectively, you know, we could run our business just on drone. Do. But that's not true. We are very much a space business because we use the data that comes from space. We are part of that workflow, part of the supply chain of intelligence that comes from those satellites. And, you know, the ability and I mean, the reality is that the whole explosion of space has driven innovation in all sorts of areas, like machine learning, you know, artificial intelligence, like um, space based solar power like broadband it's like it, 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 all of that is driven off this explosion in satellite now could would you call ATT a space company no a space, space enabled yeah right. I, I mean exactly exactly, is, is, is your, exactly. so and I, and I think that important that we are really very much you know aware of what goes on within mm-hmm. that community. And we will look to take advantage of, of, of those sorts of developments.
1: So, so, to pick up on one of the things you mentioned there, because it's interesting, um, having a lot of conversations at the moment with um, people who are looking at drone companies. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I've anecdotally heard now a few times is that uh, people who used to be excited about drones are now getting a little bit you know, disappointed because it seems like regulations of flying drones are just going up dramatically yeah. almost anywhere in the world which I suppose would favor of satellite data where it's possible to use satellite data both economically and, and also mm-hmm. physically. Um, how do you see this delineation where well, it makes sense to me? Again, you know, I've,
2: I've, and I absolutely understand why that's happened. I mean, drones have become quite a nuisance in untrained, you know, and even deliberately obstructive hands. I mean, I don't know if you remember, just a few months ago, there was a problem at Gatwick Airport yep. with people deliberately flying drones into the flight path of... The landing airliners what I'm not quite sure about is that the technology exists to prevent that so why that isn't more widely deployed I don't know but everything that is a problem in terms of drone flying has has a fix you know you can intercept you can down the the, the thing that um, you're spotting there's a problem you can you can absolutely you know you can take control remotely of any drone that flies into the wrong place where it shouldn't be so it shouldn't be that big a problem. But for some reason, there's a lag between what you, you know, what you can do to prevent that and actually people taking that up. Now, going from that point, we work only with people who are regulated sure. and who pass all of the various compliances. They are licensed drone pilots and licensed companies who can provide that service.
1: Changing time, again, all of it, um, you mentioned competitors uh, a few minutes ago. Um, who do you see as your key competitors? And I suppose as an extension to that question, if you map out this earth observation space, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's some people who are more specialized. You mentioned some people just specialise in yeah. one field like aquaculture, mm-hmm. there's some people who have more generalists, as I understand Big terror. How do you map the space and where do you mm-hmm. use yourselves?
2: Fair question. I mean, from my perspective, I mean I look at obviously the, the the standard guys like Descartes Labs, who are have a phenomenal offering. It's very you know. It's it's much more complex than ours, it's much more uh, targeted at the enterprise than us, but they don't build custom detectors. So are we a competitor? Not really, but their offering gives you very good earth analysis, but in very specific ways. It's not flexible, in my opinion, and it doesn't give you the ability to create those custom things on the fly with very little knowledge. Now, that's just my opinion. There are a couple of other companies who do bits of what we do. But to my mind, we don't have a direct competitor, not a single one. There's one or two that do let you build custom detectors, but it's a more complex process. Our machine learning is, is targeted at people who don't know how to do machine learning. It was always predicated that our users would need to know nothing more than what it was they needed to find. That was always the guiding principle. I think, from my process of looking at the uh, at the uh, competition, I don't see that anywhere else. I don't see how, um, you know. Yes, you can get a detector. Yes, you can get the knowledge. And, and unless you're very specifically looking for a particular vertical, no, you can't get it for whatever you feel like getting it for.
1: I suppose that also means, in some way, you are a data science company.
2: I I think that's fair. I mean, I I think we're data science. I think we're a machine learning, AI-driven business. And I think this is this is an application of that that just makes a lot of sense right from the beginning. It was, we were looking for, but here's an insight which may interest you. We were asked to look at a slide. It was a slide of a blood sample. And it was a slide of a blood sample showing white blood cells. And we would say, could you use your technology to look at microbiology slides, you know, histological samples that show, you know, the condition of a particular patient? It's exactly the same. You would train the detector to find those aberrant cells and then look for that in a sample. It's exactly the same. So there's no difference in in what we can do,
1: literally from a cosmological level down to a, a microbiological level. Well, oh, sure, my, my, my own partial academic background being in machine learning, I, I can certainly um, confirm and, confirm and sympathize with that. Does that also mean that the majority of your staff, like you basically have a, like, a lot of data scientists and machine learning We've guys? got
2: machine learning guys, data scientists, we've got UX guys to make the process simple. And we've got, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, we are predominantly a, a, you know, a, a machine learning data science driven business. And the GIS, the, the remote sensing is our is our key application, but it's not it's not unique it is in that it, we could do other things if and when the requirement or the opportunity or the need for it arises.
1: Does it mean if you have to hire a data scientists, I mean we're sitting here in Switzerland, which is not the cheapest country in the world, no. I suppose. I mean, <laughs> an excellent workforce, an excellent. Um, I mean we're right here by. Um, the EPFL, mm-hmm. this Swiss Institute of Technology in the which arguably is one of the top engineering schools yep. in the world, um, which is good. On the other hand, those people are probably, um, uh, they probably have a lot of offers and they probably are not cheap. Um, is there a certain tightness? Mm-hmm. in
2: terms of finding people i mean we've actually just started someone today so it's it's never easy i mean finding people with the right skill set with the right attitude who want to be involved in an early stage business and a startup none of these are trivial issues and i won't belittle how difficult it is but we've been very lucky we've found people the people who are here have generally been here for a while and there's a passion for working for this business there's a specific passion for working for this company. And I joined this company from the UK because I loved what they did. I loved the concept. You know, I I spoke to the uh, founders a couple of times before I took the role. And I, you know, for me, it was just such a beautiful, because I come from a background where I've been involved in, you know, data and the manipulation of data across different theaters of operation for many, many years. This to me is the first time I've worked in an industry where I could see something that actually made things better. It wasn't just about identifying a target and then advertising the hell out of it yeah it was very much a personal desire to be involved with something was just a bit more socially responsible understood
1: and beyond the the recruiting aspect um again coming back to to, to switzerland <laughs> i guess you're one of a handful of space startups um in Switzerland, I always personally tend to think there should be more, given the engineering excellence. Abs- in this, I could not in this agree <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, but who knows, maybe in a few years. How do you find the, um, the Swiss ecosystem? Because I suppose here, close again, close to the Swiss Institute of Technology, we are at the heart of the mm. Swiss space startup scene.
2: No, you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I'm surprised it's not more, because this industry is growing at a prodigious rate. I think I read somewhere that, what is it, three Earth observation on its own is worth about three billion right now this last year, uh, 2019. And it's forecast to grow within the next five years to about seven seven or eight billion. Now, where's that coming from? Where's that innovation, that drive, that entrepreneurial spirit coming from? I don't know. I mean, the reality is most of this stuff still goes on in the US. So whatever happens here, uh, I would like to see the same drive, the same Determination to make startups a thing that people want to do. In Germany, for example, I was in Berlin and t- until recently. I was working for a tech startup there. And the German government and the, the Berlin, you know, local government, regional government are really determined to make everything better, to make everything in- incentivized to start up. Now, I don't know if those same programs exist here, but if they don't, they should because it's a huge driver of jobs, of revenues, of taxation benefits. I mean, it's a huge, huge industry, and it's just gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger. So it would behoove the government, both the, the you know, the Vaud, uh, Canton government, and also the Swiss federal government to do more to help the startup community. You know, give them the various breaks, give them help with give them help with all of the things that they need when they're first starting off for the first
1: couple of years. Fingers crossed, um, they have um, eventually done a good job, as suppose, on, on promoting the uh, blockchain ecosystem. So maybe space maybe is next. Uh, exactly.
2: <laughs> but, but, you know, and to be honest, I mean, I get why they went with blockchain and the various, you know, well, that's the, Swiss the history thing. of Swiss. Exactly. Yeah. But this could be much bigger. This this has the, the potential to be a much, much bigger industry. I totally agree.
1: Yeah. Um, taking a step back. Um, if you look at Pictera today where you stand um, if you were the founders look three, four, five years out mm-hmm. what's the vision for the company where, where do you want to be and then how do you, you get there
2: okay well, look, two cu- tough questions so the first one is that when I look at the company in a few years' time, what I want to see is that we've become more applicable in more cases. So we have an enterprise solution that just makes a lot of sense for the big enterprises, for the universities, for people who drive you know, the utilization of this data to drive you know, Earth-bound but space-dependent programs. I want to see us be effectively the de facto standard for Earth observation analysis. That's, that's my goal. That's my aim. That's the passion I work with. What what happens to us after that point? I don't know in terms of it depends on how the industry is shaping up. We will definitely have to have moved into a much more broad and, you know, sort of acceptance that it's not just optical. There are going to be other elements of detection and observation we have to deal with. We want to try and build out a solution where the democratization has gone to its natural Conclusion: where you effectively have a search engine for the surface of this planet. Because Google Earth, isn't it? There's no map. If I want to know, you know, what's the erosion profile of all of the highways in New Jersey, and they are the worst I've ever seen in my life, there's no easy way to get that information. I can't Google that. I can't go to a website and look it up. So what I need is that Earth observation data from that region encapsulated in a single place and easily findable. That's where I think we'll sort of hoon towards it, will be a natural outcome of the work we do with our platform
1: anyway. So I suppose that is where you continue to uh, to develop and add to your um, existing classifiers of exactly. um, certain objects, um, exactly. patterns on earth. I suppose on the other side, you are going to continuously, I suppose that's your role, expand. The customer base,
2: very much so, yeah. And, and our commercial reality is that we, you know, we're we're scaling now. We've got past the initial startup phase. We're now scaling into much bigger, much more complex projects. And you know, that's that's both welcome and it's a challenge. So it's welcome because it's a sign that we're growing up, and it's a sign that we're addressing, you know, a more uh, mixed field of of clients. But it's also a challenge because we're not known for it. We're not known for being an enterprise business. We're known for a very good product that solves you know, specific problems. So I want to see us really get out there and drive into that space because it means that we're becoming more relevant. And I think that's the word that uh, I tend to come back to fairly regularly, is that our relevance is based on our use to the industry as a whole.
1: The enterprise side of things, because I suppose this is where you can have know. Big chunky revenues if, mm-hmm. if you gain a few clients and continuously more clients. I know this is probably an easy question, but for an average enterprise client, what sort of like annual revenue should I imagine? Is it like 10000 $10, dollars, a hundred thousand dollars? Oh, what to us? Yes.
2: Uh, well, okay. So we have a a list price. And then it sort of depends on the various bits and pieces. But the, it, it's down, if you look on the website, enterprise is down as POA, price on application, because there's a lot dependent on the physical work we have to do. Do we have to do custom development? Is there a custom support package or maintenance package you need? Is that, what is it you need from us? However, generally speaking, we start talking at about $50,000 per annum now that gets means that you have no caps on the data you utilize there's no overarching limit to the number of people who can use the system at any given moment and you can run it across not just one project but as many projects as you happen to have concurrently running so you can imagine for a government or for a university or for a, a large scale organization you're not just going to be running this one project at a time it doesn't work that
1: way and i suppose um if you're one of those guys paying $50,000 or more a mm-hmm. year, you have some sort of dedicated account management. You
2: have dedicated account management. You have somebody who's your central point of contact internally. They also act as your advocate. That's the person who makes sure that you're not only getting the best support from us, but you're, getting, you're making the most use of the product. Because one of the things that happens in enterprise software, and I'm sure you've seen this, is people buy a very expensive license. They buy all of this support, and then they don't use the product. That for me is a, it's a crying shame because it typically tends to be because people just don't have the time. So our job is to help our users get the absolute maximum return on investment from working with us.
1: So in achieving this uh, medium-term vision we talked about, mm-hmm. um, where do you see sort of the biggest uh, pain point or obstacles or p- potential risks them?
2: Well, the pain point is always going to be scaling, as you mentioned earlier, quite rightly, finding the people, getting the right yeah, people in place. In time, because it, you can't, in a, in a company like ours, it's difficult to just go and get resource. You can't get the resource until you've got the client base up and running and the revenue streams are de- delivering. And you've got to make sure that you phase that sort of organic growth with your revenue growth. You know how tricky that is to balance, right? Sure. So there's, that's, that's one big challenge. The other challenge is, of course, is profile, visibility. Do people know who we are when we turn up? Have they heard of us? Do they know the sort of work? That that's people? why we're here today. Exactly. So, you know, and that's really a challenge as well because it's not just PR. It's absolutely making sure that people understand that when they've heard me speak at, the, you know, on a panel or Peerick, the CEO, or Frank, who does a great job talking about the the, the the sort of the historic flow of the technology and where it's going. It's really important that they go. I care. I care what this guy is saying, and because it's relevant to me across a number of different fronts. That only happens with engagement with the market, and that only happens when we start getting that scale running. So there's a whole bunch of things that have to happen before we can turn around and say, right, we're on track.
1: And they're all, as you said, they're all interconnected. And I suppose one additional element um, that also plays into the phasing here that has to run in parallel uh, parallel and be in the right way is, um, is financing. For of yeah. like the funding that you have. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure how you how much you were involved in this, uh, but I'm going to ask anyway. So, I looked at your investor list for your um, for your round last mm-hmm. year, and um, one of I think maybe the key investor was actually Omidia mm-hmm. Network, um, which is fascinating because, of course, that's uh, Pierre um uh, investment office. Uh, Pierre media being the founder of eBay, so one of the pioneers of e-commerce. Mm-hmm. May I ask how you. How did you get to, to those guys? Um, how did they think about space? Did they know space already or was it an educational I'm effort?
2: I'm afraid I can't tell you that. I, I don't know. I wasn't involved in the in the funding round for last year. I do know that we are working very hard to make sure that we're relevant enough to the market to make sure that the next round we go for is going to be a substantially you know, uh, better finance, better understood round. But the reasoning behind why those original funders came on board, I don't know. I do know that they they came on board big style in terms of you know they they just it wasn't a twenty five or two hundred and fifty grand you know in angel investment. It was a very substantial seed investment based on what they saw from us, the potential that they saw. So the reality is that, you know, for whatever their background, and there's a, a bit of a mix of different, you know, bodies involved, but whatever their background, they saw in us that, that sort of utilization of uh, approach to market that really can deliver substantial scaling benefits. We're not a one-off, we're not a vanity project for some investor, we're not a punt. People have invested in us because they see the potential.
1: Great. Let's end on um, on a different note. Sure. So, we obviously have Pictera and Earth Observation, but it's, it's clear you're excited about space and you believe in mm-hmm. Tetra space in general. If you weren't at Pictera, where do you think you would be working in space or what would you be working on? Oh, that's a good question.
2: Um, well if if i wasn't here i'd probably be doing my own thing to be honest and using you know i'd, I'd try and work with somebody because i have been involved in uh, one of the reasons i got involved with picture in the first place is because i have a background I'm i my i did a masters in ai a long time ago uh, my first degree is geology and geography so i know about remote sensing and and you know how that works in gis so it was always and i used to run a green tech company so there's a lot of things going on there that meant that I had a natural proclivity for this space anyway. And I'd like to think that I would have taken that information, that basis, that academic background, and done something with it. I would like to have had something around environmental protection and around wildlife conservation specifically. Now, whether you make a living out of that or not is another matter, but that's, that's probably where I would have ended up.
1: Very well. We always end on the same question for everybody, partly because it's my preference. <laughs> Are you a fan of science fiction? It can be even books, it can be TV series. I'm
2: a ridiculous fan of science fiction. What are your favourite ones and why? Well, This standard, the usual, you know, the Star Trek, not Star, Star, I'm not a fan of Star Wars particularly, Star Trek, huge fan. And I, I just love that, I you mean, know, I don't know um, if, how familiar you are with Doctor Who. Do you know Doctor Who? Sure. Okay, so, I mean, that's that's a childhood thing. You either are or you're not a Doctor Who fan based on what you were doing when you were 10 years old. I, I thought
1: only your this was mandatory. It's, it is almost,
2: yes, absolutely. You have to have something to talk about at school. And then after that, it's really, I think the, the innovation in, in, in you know, the sort of space slash horror genre has become very very interesting so since aliens so back in uh the, back in the 80s which i i loved it i loved the film i love the series i don't think apart from one there's been a really bad film from that uh, particular uh thing but also i mean i just watching the animation side seeing where animation is going seeing where gaming is going i mean they bring in so many of the tropes from sci-fi and horror that they they the realism, the, the, the beauty of that gaming sort of world is just stunning to watch. So, for me, it's just anything to do with sci fi I love, and anything to do with sci fi horror I tend to get hooked on,
1: really. Excellent. On that note, Errol, again, thanks very much for
2: your time. Yeah, You're welcome, Raphael. Seriously, pleasure. It was
1: seriously. Keep looking for those travelers. Cheers, my friend. Thanks. Thank bye bye. That's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting the podcast at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, or really anything else, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's it. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.